Good morning. Uh, our scripture reading today is going to come from three different Gospels. Uh, we'll start in Matthew chapter 16, verse 21. You can follow along in your Bibles or on the screen behind me. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Secondly, we'll go to John chapter 20, verses 1 through 10. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. And lastly, we'll read from Luke chapter 24, verses 45 to 48. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. This is the word of the Lord. He is risen. He is risen there we go. This has been a tradition of the Western church for a long time, this greeting. But sometimes we can be less than energetic on a greeting like this. The question is, Does this truth about Christ being risen warrant an energetic and lively response or lethargic and stoic? This is an amazing truth. And the resurrection is a pivotal doctrine of the Christian church as a matter of critical importance to the faith. Now, if you look, I titled the sermon, He is Risen, Really, Truly. I'm sure some of you are thinking, like, why didn't he just put indeed in there? I went to Oxford Languages, and I went to Merriam-Webster, and I put in indeed, and I found that there's a lot of synonyms for indeed. Truly, really, absolutely, for sure, unquestionably, and the list could go on. I recall a time myself when my kids were young. I don't know if this has ever happened to you, but I was enthralled in something, and I was, you know, kind of busy, and the kids came to me, and they were telling me something, and it was obvious they were super excited, and I was somewhat excited, but, you know, I was kind of, you know, yes, 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 and they look at you, and they say, no, Dad, really, like truly, like really, this happened. Yeah, 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 I know. We have to be careful that we don't lose that excitement about the resurrection. 
Sometimes if we're not careful, we can let the amazing slip away from grace and let the good slip away from the news. And we might find ourselves living as if Christ had not been raised. Sometimes we can drift towards feeding ourselves content with finer and finer points of distinction related to religious matters. Deeper knowledge of the Bible and how Christ is revealed is a good thing. The passages we read this morning reveal in the disciples a progression toward a fuller and more complete understanding of Christ. From Jesus' teaching them about the resurrection to them seeing an empty tomb to him revealing himself from things that were written about him from the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. Christ revealed himself fully. The deeper understanding of God's word hopefully does to us what it did to the disciples. It caused them to proclaim Christ. We have the gospel accounts and letters and books written by Peter, James, and John. Luke describing the acts of the apostles, of which included Paul. Let's be very careful that we are never content to leave the perishing to perish. What we celebrate today is the resurrection. It has impacted our calendars. The crucifixion and resurrection of Christ has had such a profound impact on society and history that the calendar for thousands of years is marked by B.C. and A.D., before Christ and uh, Anno Domini, the year of our Lord. Now, I will leave it for your reading pleasure to go Google and research and look at the timing of when this calendar came into play. And, but obviously, the church was involved, but it had become widely accepted. The Western world has used this for centuries. Instead of a zero day, there is this recognition of the impact that Christ had. We part our calendar this is a testimony to his historical existence. So we have a before and an after. The Chinese and Muslim calendars don't have this exact timing. However, there is no denying the broad and massive impact that Christ and his time on this earth had, even to the secular world. In recent times, though, there is an all-out effort to minimize or scrub this from our society. It is impossible to do a factual study of history and to not see the impact Christians, Christianity, and the Judeo-Christian faith had on the founding of our country. This does not mean the men founding it were perfect in any way, but it's reality. There was then and has been a general awareness of Christ and the universal symbol of the cross and the cultural impact was general enough that we could take for granted that many people we came in contact with knew a lot of the Bible stories. They were educated and had been associated somehow with the church. But this is changing. A recent Wall Street Journal poll revealed 39% of people say religion is very important to them versus 62% in 1998. <clears throat> the number of people identifying as religious nuns, N-O-N-E-S, like no religion, <clears throat> has increased steadily over the past many years, peaking now at around 29 to 30%, depending on the poll you see. But the alarming thing to me is that when you look at the younger generations, the percentages are sometimes even higher. This should alarm us, but it should also pang us to think of that many people who are orienting their lives around some other form of priority we are made to worship, 
So we will worship something as human beings. We will orient our lives around something. If it is not Christ and the God of the Bible, it will be something. The environment, self-pleasure, career, family, maybe laziness, which would be a form of self-indulgence. To close on the calendar theme, I also came across a new postscript that was adopted in recent times, I guess since the 80s, was the earliest when it was first really kind of introduced, which shows I was obviously not paying attention in class because I was in school in the 80s, and this was new to me. It's called CE, or BCE. You familiar with this? Common Era, or Before Common Era. Even on our calendaring, in the name of inclusivity, we now can't use B.C. or A.D. This is just another way to suppress the truth, to deny the existence of Christ, to erase or hide or veil the existence of Christ and his impact on the earth. As I pondered this, I had an idea. I propose that if we come across C.E. or B.C.E., Instead of common era or before common era, we refer to it as the before Christ exalted era and the Christ exalted era. How's that? Now I want to emphasize that the major point that we want to talk about today is the resurrection and it is a pivotal doctrine of the Christian church. It is a matter of critical importance to the faith on which many other doctrines also stand. Paul, in his first letter to the church at Corinth, wrote, Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. What other doctrines stand with the resurrection? The existence of God. While Jesus was on earth, He proclaimed God, the God of the Bible, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jesus taught that men would put him to death, and there were many details given. And last week, Chuck pulled into clarity the Old Testament prophecies that were fulfilled in Christ, his timing and the events surrounding his ultimate sacrifice. This could only happen or be explained by the existence of a God. No human mind could coordinate such intricate fulfillments over the course of hundreds of years. The deity of Christ. While Jesus lived on the earth, he proclaimed to be equal with God and that God would raise him from the dead. Jesus called God his Father, and those are either blasphemous claims or they are true. There is no distinction. There is no in-between. He was either who he said he was or he was lying. And if he was lying, why would God have raised him? How could he have then been supported by so many? And why would they have willingly died 
and offered their life and sacrifice to him if they had not really seen him risen. The doctrine of justification. The resurrection establishes that all who believe in Christ are justified from their sin. Matthew 20, 28 says that he came to give his life as a ransom for many. The perfect sacrifice. Last week we talked about the Passover and the sacrifice of a lamb so that the Israelites would be passed over and spared. Jesus is the perfect lamb without blemish or defect, was slain, and three days later we know atonement was made because he was raised. Sanctification. The Bible teaches, and I am convinced by personal experience, that we just cannot live up to God's standard on our own. There are many great people who do great things, even among unbelievers, but there is no one without sin and cannot do enough to achieve God's standard. The resurrection, if true, then means that those in Christ can allow him to live through us. Paul states in Ephesians it this way, verses 19 and 20. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead? The doctrine of eternal life. The resurrection proves that it is not the end of this life. Death is not the end of this life. Death is defeated for all who by faith are united to him. Jesus told his disciples while he was here, he would go and prepare a place for them. And he would come again and take us to himself. And for those who believe, we will join him there one day. Jesus stated in the gospel of John, because I live, you also will live. But it also supports the doctrine of judgment. As eternal life and hope abounds for those who believe, this is also a statement or a proof of final judgment to come for all who are not in Christ. I believe it is best to simply let God's word speak at this point. Paul says, Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all, by raising him from the dead. You see, when we die, we will all have to face either Christ and have believed on him and be entered into his presence forever, or we will face a judgment. The importance of the resurrection cannot be overstated. And to summarize the doctrine of the resurrection, there are five others that hinge on it. But let's turn our attention slightly now the passages we read this morning were chosen to show a progression among the disciples' understanding. We clearly see that before the resurrection, there was a degree of belief that the disciples had voiced. The Matthew passage that we read earlier immediately follows the profession that Peter had made, where Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus then said that it says in there that from that time, he began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and be killed and on the third day be raised. So Jesus began to teach his disciples about this truth. The crucifixion obviously did shake them to the core and cause them great grief. Even though Jesus had begun to teach them about the coming suffering and requirement for the Son of Man to suffer and be raised, it seems reasonable 
how it would be hard to grasp and to be unclear of how this was going to play out. The power of the Roman soldiers, the feeling of helplessness to stop the crowd and the events. I can only imagine the disorientation in their minds. But we see that they continued to press on in the midst of their confusion. We see them on Sunday morning going to the tomb. And the empty tomb brings about a more complete understanding. And eventually the witness of the Lord brings great confidence and joy. The risen Lord, the empty tomb. And it affects the very trajectory of the apostles' lives from that point forward. Look at some of the energy in that passage that Derek read for us in chapter 20. We see that while it was early, Mary went. Then she ran when she saw the empty tomb to get Simon Peter and then the other disciple, which we believe is John. And they ran together to the tomb and the other disciple stopped. But then Peter being what Peter does, Peter goes right in. And then the other disciple goes in and it said he believed. As for yet, they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. And the final progression that we see documented in those verses is from Luke. When Jesus is appearing to his disciples after having been raised, this is after the account on the road to Emmaus, where he had revealed himself to the two disciples that walked with him. But we see him now, and it says... Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. Now, I think for completeness, we need to look at some prequel scenes to the story because I think it's exceedingly important for clear visibility into the importance of today's topic. Last week, Chuck ushered our attention to the prequel, if you will, of the events that preceded the empty tomb. Verses from Zechariah, Exodus, and Genesis linked these events to being foretold to the timing of what we refer to as Passion Week. Passion Week, the week leading up to today, all of the events that happened once Christ arrived. Now, last week we got here and we saw that the triumphal entry, the people, they were saying, they were waving palm branches and praising him, weren't they? But we see the people move from palm branches and praise to Pilate, put him away. Put him away. And finally, he's tried and ultimately raised. The triumphal entry is told in all four gospel accounts. And then there's this series of details that are included in all the different accounts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. There's a high degree of alignment between the gospels, but there's also great value in taking some time to personally understand and tease out the nuances of what was recorded by Mark and what was included by Matthew and what might have been a slightly different scene from from, uh, Luke or Mark or Matthew for that event. A study Bible is helpful here to assist in lining up all of these passages. And I think it's a great family devotion time to study 
This is a great project to do with your kids, to sit down and to line up all of these events and to pull these out and to see how this all aligns. Because some people will put this forward and say, well, that's a slightly different account. They said five women, this says two women. That must not be true. Well, we need to be prepared to give an answer when people put those things up because I believe strongly that there is very real facts and cases that align all of these data and facts together. It's also important for us to do regularly, lest we grow too familiar or comfortable, as I mentioned earlier, and allow amazing to slip away from grace and become desensitized to just how much Christ loved us when he went to the cross for us. Some of the big items on our minds regularly are the Passover and prayer, prayer in the garden. Or, in the disciples' case, lack of prayer in the garden, remember? They fell asleep. Jesus had asked them to pray, and they fell asleep. They couldn't follow through. That's included in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And we see John expands the upper room discourse. Then, all four Gospels include the betrayal and arrest of Jesus. And as Jesus is arrested... We get to walk along, and we're given insight into Peter and his denial of our Lord. So you have this main story, and then we have this side storyline that's included about Peter. We're given a lot of details about the trials of Christ, the appearance before Annas, Caiaphas, and part of the Sanhedrin, and then the full Sanhedrin. Then he endures Roman trials before Pilate, Herod, and then back to Pilate. But I want to focus now on the betrayal. Four things that we can glean from that event. And then I'm going to briefly make an observation about Peter's denial. And then we're going to close with a personal application. Turn with me to John chapter 18. They were in a garden. He and his disciples were in a garden. Now Judas who betrayed him also knew the place. For Jesus had often met there with the disciples. The first point I want to draw from this passage, the hardness of heart that a backslider might attain. We know that Judas is the one who took them to Jesus. This is a man who had been with Jesus for three years, seen miracles, heard sermons, had private instruction. Judas knew about this garden where he led them. This is a place where they no doubt spent a lot of time together, spiritual refreshing with the Lord. And he takes them to the place where he knew Jesus would be praying. And our Lord had been there sweating drops of blood while the disciples were falling asleep and can't muster the strength to stay awake and pray. But we also see Judas in verse 5. It says, who betrayed him was standing with them. Do you know how that must have hurt? To see him standing with them, the betrayer standing with those with whom he is offering up the Lord. 
We know from other places in Scripture that Judas had already been stealing for some time. The other truth in this passage that I'd like to draw your attention to is the voluntary yield to sufferings by Christ. We see in this passage that Jesus went to meet them. We see that he got up to meet them as they were coming. They were coming and he went to meet them. And when they asked for him, he said, I am he. And they fell back. This included the Roman soldiers who were with him, with Judas. I think that's important because they were formidable men. This must be a miracle demonstration put here as an exclamation point on the willingness of Christ to suffer for his elect. Because he sets the tone very clearly that he will go, but he will go willingly. They could not take him if he did not let them take him. Paul writes, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne. We also see the hardness of man. To see the powerlessness that they had to take him, they knew they were bound and that he had to go willingly. And then they also saw a miracle here where Peter here, or, uh, Jesus healed the ear that Peter had cut from the high priest. He also had an obvious concern for the disciples' safety. It's a simple point, but he sought freedom for his ability to go. And lastly, we see him perfectly submit to the Father's will. Verse 11, I think it is, 18. Jesus said to Peter, put your sword in its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? But you see, if we look back carefully, just briefly, in Matthew, he prayed, If it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will. And then we see in Mark, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not I will, but what you will. And then in Luke, we see, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup. But in John, in John, shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? In the denial by Peter, we also see the amazing degree of weakness that can be found in a Christian. We see Peter deny our Lord three times after running away when he ought to have stood by him. I believe this portion is included here for us as a warning against pride and self-confidence. Maybe if Peter hadn't fallen asleep and he had stayed more faithful praying, I don't know. But it does show us that the fear of man is a very real influence. And let's take 1 Corinthians 10, 12 very seriously. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. As I mentioned earlier, we'll need to cover the details of what a mockery the trial was. It was just a sham of due process and how Jesus was marched from here to there and it was all done outside of any sort of proper law. We'll do that another time. But today I want to turn now to us. The ability to say he is risen, he is risen indeed, is a must to live a transformed life in the hope 
of Christ's return. We saw the importance of this doctrine and the resurrection and how it proves God's existence, Christ's deity, the doctrine of justification, sanctification, eternal hope, and judgment. But let's ask a question. Where am I in this story? Who can I possibly identify with? A member of the crowd? Someone influenced along with the momentum of beliefs of the day? Someone who does see the importance of Jesus but maybe isn't a true believer? Or maybe is a believer but is being swayed along by the crowd to and fro? Maybe you're a non-believer. Someone who does not believe these claims. If you're here, I applaud you for being here. And I hope that you will honestly test these claims and what I've put before you today. I believe strongly that there is plenty of evidence to support the reality of the resurrection if one will objectively approach the facts that are available. The Christian faith is not grounded on fluff. There is a reasoned faith. It is a reasoned faith. Ultimately, one must be confronted with either Jesus is who he said he was or he isn't. Judas, someone close to the church, the faith, around Christian things a lot, maybe a form of belief or the appearance of belief by most people looking on you, but maybe you're harboring a secret sin or sins, a besetting sin that is ever-present, unconfessed, and unrepented of. This could be pride, gossip. Harboring anger, ill will, covetous, greed. Maybe there are secret lusts. By all appearances, everyone believes you to be a true disciple. But maybe you know in your heart you aren't. And you're afraid to confess that. Peter, the zealous, energetic, and confident one, who maybe acts and appears bold and strong, but secretly feared man, or struggles with the fear of man, appears Christian and strong around the church, but fits in with the crowd elsewhere. A faithful disciple like John who followed his Lord, it says the other disciple who went in with Jesus and was known by the high priest. I put two acronyms on your outline, BB and AB. Which one describes you? In the context of a calendar of your life, is there a clear marker in your life of before belief in the Lord Jesus Christ and after belief? Think of Thomas when he had expressed his doubt in John chapter 20. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and have yet believed. A life that encounters Christ is a life characterized by the evidence of change. The impact of coming to know Jesus Christ, of being born again, radically affects every aspect of one's life. I want to be very careful, precise, and clear here. It would be far better to be honest with yourself and know you don't believe and to acknowledge that you have questions and you need answers 
than it would to be described as almost believed. Every one of us will do well to examine our lives and see if there are some areas of known sin or we find that there are areas of appearances of belief but no power of the Spirit. Do not delay. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Confess and repent of any known sin and seek your salvation, lest you grow hard and calloused and comfortable with sin that it might lead you away and ultimately to fall away. I also think it's important for us to consider that every one of us was in that crowd at one time. You see, as Christ is lifted on that cross and his bloody, beaten body was being hoisted and mocked, we must all at some point understand that it was my sin. Yes, your sin and my sin. Those secret sins, hidden down deep, those openly committed, those openly committed in defiance. Yes, those even committed in omission. Idolatry, putting other things before God, sinful words, thoughts, gossip, anger, selfishness, pride, and the list can go on. We have to understand and see that it is our sin that was set in those bone-laden leather straps that tore his flesh. And all of the blood and all of the pain that he endured on that cross was our sin. And to think that he willingly went up there for all who would believe. This is amazing. Let's read the words of Paul. While we were yet sinners, Christ died. Can you say, for me? And it is by grace that we have been saved. It's not of ourselves. It is a gift of God. And it is our belief that this sacrifice was sufficient. And that through our trust in this and through the resurrection, he can save us. Last week, we looked at the sacrifice of Isaac. In Hebrews, Paul records a couple of small verses about that. It says, in Hebrews 11, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, who he had re- and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac, your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Think about that. Abraham so believed the promise of God that the nations would be blessed through Isaac, that while he was headed to sacrifice, he must have reasoned that if he sacrifices him, God will raise him. This is our hope. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you. For I delivered to you as of first importance that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, in accordance with the scriptures. 
The final question, an offer and a challenge. Do you believe? If you have not believed, I hope that you will embrace the Savior. See and believe that he went to that cross for you and that you can have eternal life if you confess your sin, desire to repent of it, and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. If you are before belief and you have questions and want to know more, I, or I'm sure many of my brothers and sisters here, are willing to adjust our calendars and make ourselves available to answer any question you may have. I will meet you at any time of day or night if you are honestly seeking. I will do my level best to get you any answer that you may have to help you wrestle through any doubt that you may have. I'll pray with you. We'll walk alongside you because we believe the evidence is clear and we will help you in any way we can. Whatever you do, please do not be satisfied with almost. Be certain you have found the Savior and have found peace. Now, if A-B describes you after belief, then live a transformed life. Families live transformed lives. And please keep the amazing in grace and let it compel you to live differently, unstained and guided by the world. Rather, live boldly for Christ. Live in light of the truth and power of the gospel, of the cross and the resurrection, and never, ever be comfortable with the fact that there are some around you who are perishing. Pray often for the chance to share and for God to save those that are around you. Let's pray. Merciful God, we thank you for coming. I'm thankful that we have Bibles. We have your word preserved for us. I am thankful that we have so much evidence about you. I am thankful that we have reasonable evidence. But first and foremost, I'm just thankful that you have saved us and that you came for us. In Jesus' name, amen.